this episode, I'm joined by political theory professor Ryan R. Holston to discuss his recently released book, Tradition and the Deliberative Turn, a critique of contemporary democratic theory, alongside discussions on Gadamer and morality. I'd like to say a big thank you to all my paying patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to keep the podcast going as it runs off patronage alone, please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Ryan Holston, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. Thanks for having me. We are going to be discussing your recently released book, Tradition and the Deliberative Turn, a Critique of Contemporary democratic theory which um mm-hmm. was published by suny press who i will say were kind enough to send me a hardback edition and copy so thanks very much to them uh this is a book as people will imagine about democracy the deliberative turn tradition and it features thinkers such as rousseau and most importantly i think for your own work gadamer um mm-hmm. so before we jump in with the book and its ideas, just tell us a little bit about yourself, what it is you do, and uh, why did you came to write uh, write this book? Sure. So uh, I guess I'll just start with the sort of biographical stuff. I'm a professor at VMI uh, here in Virginia, um, and I've been here for 14 years, and I teach political theory in a department of uh it's well it's called international studies and political science but it's basically sort of uh international relations heavy um so i'm the sole political theorist here um and incidentally you you uh in your email to me you paid me a nice compliment that i wish you could tell my colleagues which is you said uh that my (laughs) that my work is practical um which is kind (laughs) of funny because which is funny because I, i work in a department uh full of empiricists and i think they sort of uh caricature me as always sort of communing with Plato or something. Uh so it's kind of kind of nice to um to to get a compliment that that my work was practical. Um but uh you know I've been I guess now for a few years writing about um two predominant themes um related themes one is tradition in general and the other uh I would say is sort of critiques of utopianism. Mm-hmm. Um and so the tradition idea um, was something that I wrote my dissertation about back in 2008. And that was uh, just broadly speaking, an appropriation, I guess you could say, of Edmund Burke's thinking, not intellectual history, but just sort of a use of the ideas in um, in Burke's writing, mm-hmm. speaking and writing. Um, but that got me interested in some others, other thinkers who write about tradition. Um, Irving Babbitt was probably one of the most um, influential on, on my thinking of them, but others such as T.S. Eliot, um, who I have an interest in, uh, and have written about uh, a couple times. And then at the end of the dissertation, I became interested in this guy, Hans George Gadamer. And I didn't really, um, have the opportunity to take him as seriously as I wanted to during the dissertation. Um, but there were, you know, there were other thinkers sort of in the mix, um, uh, Klaus Wren, who's a contemporary political theorist, uh, Alistair McIntyre, um, and others sort of writing, broadly speaking, about tradition. Um, but then utopianism is sort of the other uh, area, and they obviously have, I think, some relation uh, to one another, those ideas. Um, but uh, that's 
kind of where I am now after just publishing this book. I'm talking about um, deliberation, um, or excuse me, sorry. <laughs> Uh, I've been talking about political deliberation and now sort of moved on to uh, utopian thinking with regard to uh, science, uh, both the natural and social sciences. And so I'm kind of, um, we can talk about this later, kind of working on um, a book that is about that. Um, this book, though, came out of kind of a dissatisfaction, I think, with the dissertation. Um, and as I was sort of thinking about how I wanted to treat the subject of political del deliberation a little bit more seriously, um, sort of post-dissertation. Um, I started thinking, you know, how am I going to write this book in light of the requirements of getting tenure and whatnot? Um, and I ended up, rather than trying to write a book right out of the gate on the dissertation, writing a series of articles on Gadamer because I thought he's long-term going to be useful for me mm -hmm. in writing that book. Um, and so I, I published those articles, um, both with the intention of getting tenure, but obviously also um, because Gadamer, I thought, is someone who hasn't really weighed into this important conversation uh, like I think is needed if people are going to be taking deliberation seriously. Um, and by seriously, I mean um, viewing it through a more historical lens. Um, and so that's that's what I try and do uh, in the book. Um, he uh, is, I guess you could say, much more of a philosopher um, than he is uh, really a, a, you know, a political theorist, which I am. And so, you know, on the one hand, um, I'm kind of I guess you could say stretching uh, his thinking or uh, appropriating his thinking for those purposes. Um, but also, um, you know, it creates an opportunity, I think, because he didn't really, I think, uh, talk directly or speak directly about, um, you know, the debates that are going on um, that I'm interested in. And so um, so I've tried to, to, to use his thinking in that way. Um, and I say in the book, you know, this is not, uh, you know, I, I, I try and distance myself from him and say this isn't something I think Gottman necessarily would have said, but I think uh, given the insights of his philosophy, this is um, something that I think uh, needs to be said about public deliberation mm -hmm. today. So so I just want to jump back because you said about the compliment on Pedro work with it being practical, which <laughs> is tied in with the, the more... Uh, the, the, the Gardamer sections of your book, which is really this sort of the second half of the book. Um, yep. And I guess just before we jump to the Hermetics question, I, I sort of want a small digression on that, which is really okay. the question of uh, why do you think people fear being practical now? If, if you agree with me, because it does seem to be there's a reluctance of drawing the line and uh, saying, let's, let's be practical. Well, I think... Maybe another way to say it. I mean, I, I qualifiedly agree with you. I mean, I, I think people um, are sort of finding difficulty bridging the gap between theory and practice mm -hmm. is how I would put it. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I was saying about people in my department, I mean, they're all positivists, they're all empiricists. They have they have no problem being practical, but I think um, I, I'd, I'd like to see a little bit more reflection on, I guess, first principles from um from the rest of the discipline of political science um 
But I think you're right also, on the other hand, that among philosophers, political theorists, um, there's sort of the escape <laughs> into the theoretical. Um, and um, so anyway, I why? Um, I don't know. I mean, in a sense, I think that's part of what I'm trying to answer in the book. Mm-hmm. I talk about, um, you know, the, the philosophical term that I give it is metaphysical dualism, right? And in a way, it's that separation or that divorce of theory from practice. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to address this. Um, I don't know if I do an adequate job of it, but um, I think it has to do with modernity. Hmm. I think it. I think you know, broadly speaking, it has to do with uh, an understanding of ourselves um, that we've lost sight of. Um, uh, as embodied creatures who nonetheless have the capacity to think more deeply about what we're doing. And so it's, um, we're sort of pragmatists on the one hand, but we're sort of Gnostics on the other. Um, and that's, that's, I think, a problem. Um, if you want theory or philosophy to be anything more than just esoteric, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I don't know. Um, I guess I'm kind of fumbling through this answer, but no, I, don't, uh, I think it makes sense, and I think it will probably tie in near the end of our discussion with the moral subject and the, the I guess, the flattening of the dualism that you're talking about is the. Well, we'll get to that, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. where it's practical. But I know you're a listener, so I know you're somewhat yeah. prepared for this one. Um, yeah. The Hermetics question: Place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room, and listen in on the conversation. Who do you pick? Yeah. Well, I know from experience that uh, Gadamer's already in the room, correct? Um, well, I, you know, normally I'd do that if we were focusing on Gadamer. We can, we can do that. We can do that. But I think okay. it was like, Gadamer plays a key role in your book. But I also thought that like, it, it seemed pretty even between Rousseau and Gadamer. And I didn't really want Rousseau in the room. So <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah, Gadamer's already in the room and th- th- oh, right. three more. Well, well, it's my way of sneaking in four people, but yeah, um, but I could do it. I could do it either way. So uh, assuming that Gadamer is in, mm-hmm. in the room, um, I would put Plato in the room with Gadamer. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gadamer calls himself a Platonist. Um, he is uh, a very, and we can talk about this, a very qualified uh, plat- sort of Platonist. He has, I think, a very unique reading of Plato. Um, but I want him in the room. Um, I want uh, somebody who I mentioned when we were talking about um, sort of uh, theorists, people who talk about tradition, who I'm interested in, a contemporary political philosopher, uh, Klaus Rinn. I'd like to put him in the room with Gadamer. Um, and they have met. Incidentally, I don't. I don't think they've had any lengthy conversations. But Klaus told me they had a, a car ride together once. Uh, Rin and Plato. Because uh, Gadamer. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Uh, what? Well, well, I was making a joke. Rin and Plato. <laughs> Gadamer. Um, Gadamer. Uh, no, not with Plato. <laughs> um, Gadamer uh, taught at Catholic University. Uh, okay. Um, at one point, and so they they did uh, meet. Um, but, uh, I'd like at least those three in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, uh, that's, uh, if Gadamer weren't to count, but if he does count and he, if, he, if he's already in the room and I get to put yet another person in, I put Aristotle in the room. Okay. 
Um, and so I'll sort of give you the rationale for um, my thinking about that. Rin, uh, I would say Rin and Gadamer are um, the contemporary thinkers who've influenced me the most. Mm-hmm. And I think they share a lot um, normatively speaking um, regarding their thinking about sort of um, what I would call abstract rationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, their sort of skepticism toward an abstract rationalism that they think poses um, dangers for moral and political life. And so I think, um, but what's interesting um, about that is notwithstanding that normative common ground that they share. And also I think they, they are um, sort of thinkers of tradition. They talk a lot about tradition and they understand the sort of inevitability of tradition in, in, um, in our lives and in our practical actions. Um, they, I think what I think is fascinating is that these thinkers who have both influenced me a lot have diametrically opposed readings of Plato. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've been wrestling with for some time. Rin has what I would call a more um, maybe familiar uh, view of Plato as an abstract rationalist. Um, sort of, you know, he pays a lot of attention to the Republic mm-hmm. um, and sees Plato as kind of vacillating between a maybe a political quietism or withdrawal almost um, because of his discontent with messy political reality or social reality, sort of bordering on an escapism uh, on the one hand and a kind of political idealism, you know, with Mm -hmm. um, even a kind of totalitarian streak in his thinking. Um, He has a, you know, an intolerance of that reality, which plays out um, in those two different ways. Um, and it's because of this sort of abstract rational standard of justice that he's applying there. And so he just either gets, well, he gets fed up with kind of social reality as we see it and, uh, or as we live it and, uh, has those two different reactions. Gadamer, on the other hand, has this really kind of idiosyncratic reading, uh, of Plato He's very sympathetic, I think, to Plato and reads him as uh, as essentially a proto-Aristotelian. Um, and he writes a book later in his career called The Idea of the Good in Platonic Aristotelian Philosophy. And he sort of sees sort of sees Plato as a proto-Aristotelian and Aristotle as much more of a Platonist. <laughs> I think most people um, read Aristotle. Um, so that's also why I want Aristotle in the room is to sort of, um, you know, stir things up. Um, but um, I don't I don't know if Aristotle would go along with this. And I think that Gadamer has some sort of controversial things to say about Aristotle's reading of Plato. He says that Aristotle kind of deliberately misrepresents Plato. Um, that he uh, essentially deliberately misinterprets Plato to use him as a foil to make his point about uh, the concreteness of the good Mm -hmm. Um, and to make that more pronounced. Um, And, you know, what Gadamer says about Plato and his various 
you know, the, the, all the things that bother Rin, all of those sort of abstractions is talking about the forms and the separateness of the good from this world. Gadamer says, well, you know, he didn't really mean that. You know, he was speaking metaphorically. Um, he was talking about the separateness of the good, but doesn't really want us to think of it as a separate thing in itself. He's just trying to call attention to it as uh, part of this concrete empirical reality in which we live every day. Mm-hmm. And so he uses this term methexis, which means participation when he's referring to the good. Um, and when he uses these other Greek words like charismos, right, the separateness, he's like, well, that's, again, that's that's the metaphorical um, locution um, that he's drawing on. But he doesn't want us to think of it as a real thing. Um, and of course, you know, I think in a way, that's what Rin's concerned about as well, is thinking about the good as a thing that's separate from the world in which we live. Um, but they have different readings of Plato and whether he's a good guy or a bad guy in that fight. And so, and so that's, that's kind of the the thing that I'd like to see them hash out mm. um, and, you know, see the different works on which they would draw, whether, you know, how we should think about the Republic, how we should think about the laws, um, you know, what, what other texts are going to be, um, you know, prominent in that mm. debate. And, and again, I threw Aristotle in there just to sort of stir things up and see whether he would go along with Gadamer um, and support his case or undermine it, uh, stick to his gun, so to speak, with that critique of Plato, that famous critique of Plato, and sort of take Rin's side and say, you know, this guy's, this guy's, uh, this guy's an idealist, and we need to be careful about him. It does seem like that room does relate back to once again to the first thing we were talking about about to what extent you know you're talking talking there about the separation of the good either as i guess either as a thing in itself or as a simply as a metaphor to just understand it but that separation this is a discussion that's going on through your book i guess is is to what extent is that has that separation perhaps damaged this notion of tradition also the notion of democracy also like the alienation of the subject from from ethics from being a moral subject uh, it seems that that room would turn towards whether or not uh, these concepts that you're talking about throughout the book are sort of embodied or are they are just these sort of separate things that yeah. we can once again just exit, as you said, escape into abstraction and not really have to deal with them. Yeah. I mean, even, even Rin says, you know, we need these concepts. We need to be able to think rationally, philosophically. Um, I mean, he is a philosopher. Uh, or a political philosopher, and he does believe in the importance of of using reason. Um, but the problem is um, is reification. The problem is hypostatizing, you know, our ideas about the good, and ultimately what happens after we think about the good that way. Um, are there dangers that that poses for? subsequent action um in this world mm. well i'm sure all of these things well definitely some of these things are going to uh re-arise throughout our chat but uh, yes to open up the discussion what is the deliberative turn yeah so the deliberative turn so this um this is sort of recent uh and when i say recent 
I'm only speaking about, I mean, we've just been talking about Plato and Aristotle. So <laughs> um, recent means decades. Um, this is a recent development in uh, contemporary political theory. And it uh, goes back to kind of, I guess you could say a debate among democratic theorists in the mid 20th century, um, the grounds on which they justify um, democracy mm-hmm. as a form of institutions for organizing political behavior. Um, you know, by the mid 20th century, we had, uh, we in the West had come to the conclusion or seemingly come to the conclusion that there was a utilitarian what I would call a utilitarian justification for democratic institutions. There's something really effective about democracy. And what I mean is, you know, not just the franchise, but things like interest groups, mm-hmm. um, the ways that we organize ourselves in democratic society. Um, it, it's very effective at maximizing utility at, um, at, at maximizing the greatest good for the greatest number of people um, and that justification goes all the way back to Thomas Hobbes. Um, but of course, you know, there are other well-known thinkers in the utilitarian tradition of political philosophy that were drawn on Bentham, Hume, Mill, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was sort of the prevailing sense through at least the middle of the 20th century. But that sentiment starts to erode you know, starting in kind of the, um, at least the 80s and 90s, I would the 1980s and 1990s, um, you start to get uh, a sort of, I guess, a disillusionment with this as a justification for the spirit of democracy. So democracy is still what's being um, held up as the ultimate legitimate form of governance, but there's kind of a dissatisfaction that utility is going to be the best way to defend it. Because it's sort of looked at as, well, if all we're doing is kind of aggregating preferences mm-hmm. um, and and kind of crossing your fingers that your opponents, your political opponents' interests are outweighed, mm. um, that doesn't really treat them as equals. It doesn't really treat them with the kind of, it's not true to the spirit of democracy um, to view them as just kind of, um, you know, uh, a number, a quantity, Mm -hmm. right, that has to be outweighed. And so um, there's sort of a turn, uh, I think, to uh, ultimately Rousseau. And the reason I say Rousseau is because deliberation or justification um, or in some ways publicly talking about uh, what it is that we are aspiring to, our, our policy preferences, uh, our ideals for living together, um, that's going to be what treats our fellow citizens mm-hmm. as equal subjects. Um, and I say Rousseau because really this is, I think, an attempt to um, to get other citizens to endorse the grounds on which we implement public policy. And so there's an attempt to gain a a kind of consensus, right? If not of our 
actual concrete policy choices, at least the moral underpinnings of them. Mm-hmm. So the principles that we appeal to um, in our public deliberations um, are, you know, in some sense, um, you know, we, we, we want other people to, uh, to at least see where we're coming from. And so as we do that, you know, we're kind of treating them as our equals, as our, you know, our sort of uh, our fellow citizens, and we're searching for a kind of agreement. And, you know, the strategies for achieving that agreement uh, vary. And the deliberative democracy movement uh, has a lot of strains to it. I can't cover them all. uh, And I didn't cover them all in the book. Um, But what I sort of do there is outline um, two of the main strategies for doing so. Um, And I talk about their kind of representative thinkers, uh, John Rawls and Jürgen Habermas, um, who are uh, representing the appeals uh, to other citizens on, um, I guess you could say, uh, procedural or substantive grounds. Um, we're either going to, as Habermas and his followers would have it, we're either going to set up a set of procedures and have a very broad uh, deliberative discussion and sort of see where it takes us and come to uh, come to some sort of ultimate consensus, hopefully. Um, but he's more concerned with setting up those procedures and seeing where things lead. And then Rawls is more concerned with kind of limiting the discussion to begin with on a kind of public consensus that he believes is already out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but uh, why are they doing this? Um, the, I think the answer is they're, um, they're kind of coming to the conclusion that even though we want to treat other citizens as our equals, and we're going to try to appeal to them uh, as much as possible to gain their consensus. Living in modernity, living in a time in which we are kind of beyond traditional political communities, mm-hmm. um, we uh, we can't uh, we have to think of ourselves as in kind of a post metaphysical uh, social environment um, where. We're going to use our reason to deliberate, but never to kind of uh, assume that we have a shared set of moral values or underpinnings to our discussion. Um, And so, you know, modernity plays a big role in this, and they sort of uh, take very seriously the fact that, you know, um, after the Enlightenment, after the wars of religion, Um, Once you get into especially the 19th century and you see a lot of social fracturing, um, all that we can really hope for, aspire to, is appealing to one another as equal citizens. Um, And that's so that's kind of those are kind of the strategies of consensus. Um, They're what what are called, um, you know, strategies of public reason. Um, And so there's just kind of this um, this dichotomy between two types of deliberative Democrats, you know, whether they want to rely on public procedures or a kind of uh, overlapping consensus, uh, a liberal content for those justifications. Hmm. 
this appeal, you know, within speaking of modernity, uh, and the, I mean, there's a lot there that you've you've mentioned. So there's a couple of points that I want to draw out. One to do with Rousseau, and one to do with being beyond political communities, and I think they're they're, they're connected. Um, so in modernity, I mean, um, perhaps you would agree. I mean, it's a, it's a time. What, however, we're really defining it socially. It's a time, as you said, sort of beyond political communities, beyond that type of metaphysics, um, and of perhaps social alienation. It's the mm-hmm. uh, the cult of the individual. Everyone is, uh, uh, in the words of various philosophers, everyone almost has their own individual religion and almost their own individual politics. It's like everyone's a walking individual denomination, whether or not they they see it or not. Um, it, does, I'm being a bit too abstract. My point would be that in drawing in Rousseau, do you feel that you, you need to have that? Like, um, you need to have sympathy with in this appeal to individuals do we need to begin from that sympathy with the Rousseauian understanding that man is inherently good because I would just you know flat out disagree with him but do you think that's something you need to have if you're going to draw in Rousseau in this sense I mean that's kind of where I'm going in the book I mean that you've kind of already put your finger on the underlying assumption that I'm kind of struggling with which is uh you're you're assuming a lot about how deliberation can occur mm-hmm. if you view individuals as absent any acculturative um, sort of uh, process, any any history, any past that any community that precedes their deliberation. Um, what is it that's going to orient them towards deliberation? Mm-hmm. One and number two, uh, and this is one of the big themes of the book. Um, how are they going to? Uh, how are they going to share meanings? Mm. How are they going to? How are they going to understand one another? How are their meanings going to resonate with one another without a community? And so, um, you know, the, I would say your your question really hits on the first of those, mm-hmm. um, but it brings up the broader point about community and what is its role in deliberation. And I think, I think absolutely. I mean, just to assume that they're oriented towards uh, pursuing the good in common with other people is a lot. I mean, you're building a (laughs) lot into, into uh, the idea of deliberation. Um, If I were going to be less generous, I might say there's something kind of parasitic about deliberative democracy insofar as it assumes parasitically the fruits of tradition Mm. without actually acknowledging where they're coming from. Um, That's, that's a less generous way of putting it. But I I think, you know, I I would at least throw the question back and say, how are they going to do this? Where, where are they going to, uh, where are they going to get this disposition? Um, Disposition for the good. This, this disposition to deliberate about the good, to yeah. pursue it in the first yeah. place. And this is one of the first things that, you know, Socrates is dealing with um, in his dialogues, right? I mean, whenever he encounters these nasty sophists, they're, they're always sort of, they're always sort of resisting that process, mm. right? There's got to be kind of a willfulness about their pursuit of, um, answers to the questions that he's asked. And, um, you know, part of, you know, 
the, the problem isn't just that they're not rational enough, put it that way. Mm. Right. But some of them, you know, they're, 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 there's a whole wide variety of sophists and some of them aren't as good as others. But with the really hard cases, I think, um, the problem is not their reason. The problem is their will. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing about the sophists um, is that they're itinerants, mm-hmm. right? They're um, people who uh, are outsiders. They're not part of the community. They haven't been acculturated uh, to pursue the good in the ways that Socrates interlocutors have been. And I find that kind of fascinating that, um, you know, Plato makes that clear that there's kind of a there's kind of a preparation that's necessary for pursuing the good. Um, and I think that preparation gets us into a discussion that you know we can talk about um, as we get more into the book, a discussion of friendship and sort of uh, friendship as a, a precursor for any really meaningful or genuine uh, conversation or deliberation. Um, and so that, that takes up that latter half of the book that you were alluding to earlier. Do you think tradition is in large part friendship? Yes. I think that, um, I mean, it's a little bit more than that, where we could have stopped with Aristotle, mm. right? I mean, we, we, could have, we could have simply said that, you know, politics and ethics are connected, as Aristotle believed. But I think there's also... Uh, the reason I go to Gadamer and other thinkers, uh, contemporary thinkers who are talking about explicitly about tradition is there's a more historical dimension to friendship that needs to be addressed, something intergenerational mm. uh, about friendship, because it doesn't it doesn't just spring from nowhere. Um, communities have a past um, and it, you know, it lasts beyond a single generation. Mm. Well, I'll just uh, perhaps I'll throw something in here just to see what you would say, just because it's something I'm writing about at the moment. Uh, it seems to me that there is a complete um, uh, paradox in traditional, what we consider to be traditional values, surviving within modernity. And so the modern world itself, with its sort of cult of individualism, uh, arguably uh, from that, a sympathy towards selfishness, egoism, greed, uh, and all forms of emancipation. It seems that the paradox is that through uh, that, that certain traditional values, uh, which I personally would, in the Western world at least, relate back to uh, the teachings of Christ, of Christianity, of things like the Beatitudes, so kindness, courage, compassion, these are all completely anathema to modernity, and yet somehow we would all still within the so-called secular world and the increasingly secular world, probably, hopefully collectively agree, or at least majoritively collectively agree, that these are actually the good values that we should adhere to, even though they are completely not beneficial to living in the modern world. As much as I hate to say it, modernity's values almost seem to be non-values because kindness, to, to give a sort of cheap example, still kind of wins. And so do you do you think that, uh, it's almost something to do with a vacuum. Like tradition is there, and perhaps we've been attempting to sort of find a new tradition, but we just we aren't able to. Uh, and I don't know. Something keeps coming through from the past. But I've thrown a lot at you there. But uh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting the way you just described that. I mean, you sound a lot like Alistair McIntyre. You sound like you're talking about sort of the situation that he describes at the beginning of After Virtue, mm. right? We're living in the wreckage of an old civilization, mm-hmm. right? And, and we're like scientists trying to sort of sift through these uh, pieces of evidence that have come through to us, but that don't really make much sense anymore. Mm. Um the words don't seem to correspond uh, to the, the the deeper meanings that they once had. And again, I think this kind of echoes, uh, <laughs> kind of goes back to what we were discussing earlier, that bridge between theory and practice that I don't think that the problem is that we haven't arrived at the right language for agreement. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is that 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 we could just keep deliberating mm-hmm. and things would get better. <laughs> um I think I think if if the last decade has uh has bared anything out it's that. Um what's the fundamental problem then? Why is political deliberation so bad uh in the western world at the present moment? And I think I mean f- for me and this is the argument I try and make in the book it's the way that we're living. It's the concrete practices. The the concrete practices have to be, and I think Gadamer uh, is helpful in establishing this, they have to be connected to the language that we use, or ultimately, if we're just a bunch of free-floating cosmopolitans who are (laughs) reaching for the same words, um, but ultimately um, seeing them fall on deaf ears, um, at best, if not, you know, generating real anger and animosity at worst. And I, I think that, I think that's, I think the, the, the reason or the problem is it comes back to, uh, we haven't been acculturated in the same way anymore. Mm. Those words, uh, find their origins in an older way of living in an older civilization, which as you say, is, is no longer operative. Um, how to reconnect them? Well, I think, and this is the argument I make in the book, I think we need to push the needle back, so to speak, in the direction of rootedness, mm. in the direction of community. Um, and as I, you know, the the sort of catchphrase that I use for tradition in the book, I don't um I don't just throw around tradition because it it can mean so many different things. And I I guess I was afraid I'd be misunderstood. Mm. But the catchphrase that I use is concrete communities that exist over time. Mm. Because tradition, I mean, tradition can mean a lot of things. It can mean a tradition of thought. It can be, um, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But I think maybe to, to sort of flesh that out a little bit more, a concrete community that exists over time gets at... I think some of the communitarian or neo-Aristotelian impulses, um, you know, that were going on in the 1990s, reacting in a lot of ways to these deliberative Democrats. But I think it does so in a more historical way, in a more Gadamerian way. And so it shows or tries to emphasize that communities, in order to really be rooted, they can't just exist for a single generation. They have to exist over time. Um you know, and that's again going back to to your original point. I think that the problem that we're facing is time. 
right? Over time, our language has ceased to mean what we think it means. We've become deracinated. And as a result, um, there's been a kind of disconnect between what you think the basic liberties are, right? And to, to pick a Rawlsian phrase, um, you know, or equal opportunity or whatever, and what I think that means. So you would say tradition is downstream of those communities? I think those, I think uh, tradition describes those communities over time. Yeah. Okay. In which case, it's a question of there are certainly communities, what we would consider to be by some sort of flimsy definition, there are communities within the modern world. So what do you think it is that doesn't, is it just that we haven't had enough time? You know, something perhaps happened post World War II, where there's this sort of big. A cataclysm of event where people just became sort of I don't know it seems to be the big the big event which really splits things apart yeah uh, is it that we just haven't had enough time or is it that the communities of modernity have a qualitative difference which really means that at their surface level we can call them communities but something within them hasn't really allowed a a you know a, 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 a coherence of values if I had to I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> if, I, if I if I had to um, if I had to point to sources, you're essentially asking the question of sources of deracination, right? Why why is it why is it that communities can Not only really exist? communities anymore? Yeah, and or, or yeah, or or if they exist at all, mm-hmm. they seem to be fleeting. Mm-hmm. They seem to be very temporary mm-hmm. um, or, or thin. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean. There are two sources, one of which, as a political theorist, I can address, and the other I have trouble addressing. Um, one is, that I try to address in the book is what we think is important, what we think our priorities are. Um, and so I try and I try and make the case that if you think communities are valuable for anything, right, deliberation should be something that benefits from the existence of shared values. Mm-hmm. And so trying to convince people that um, there is an importance to this and that it can exist in the modern world. That's another big argument of the book. And some people say that it's, we're just beyond it. We're post, we're post metaphysical, you know, um, which I think is, is an incorrect characterization. The other, um, the other source of fracturing um you know, I mean, these are the sort of social forces that I can't do much about, right? Things like the market economy, mm. um, and, uh, and and you know the the all of the the technological um, influences on what it means to be a modern person. I mean, these are these these are just going to exist. And I think they have to be understood and accepted. Um, we have to live with the social reality that we face. But, um, but in terms, but again, as a political theorist, I think in terms of the normative priorities, um, I think we've lost sight of the import of traditional community. Um, and I'm and I'm not saying, um, and I make this point in the book, I'm not saying that we need to get back to a kind of medieval fishing village right or or an aristotelian polis um or even like you know anti-federalist america mm-hmm. um i don't think that that's possible i think that that 
in itself is kind of a romantic idea of community. But I do think that we can come to an understanding that even if there are advantages to liberalism and to individualism, there are going to be costs. We're going to lose something um, by pushing in the other direction against community. And I think deliberation is one of those areas. And this, this is, to use Gadamer's language, this would be what, what you write of as this rehabilitation. Yes. Um, well, the, the question of rehabilitation, I mean, this kind of brings up a, a, a whole another subject. Um, but the, I think the rehabilitation has more to do with, um, how we think about, well, yes, you're right. It is connected. It's how we think about the past. Mm. It's how we think about the past in contrast to, the way that modernity has taught us to think about the past. Um, so I, I, uh, I don't know if you want me to, to jump right into Gadamer and talking about sort of, um, well, I, I think, I think from what we, the foundation that we've given thus far about this sort of splitting or, or, or disintegration of tradition in a way, our inability to use, uh, to, to really have, you know, we say the good, I mean, who dares state what the good actually is anymore? I think we're moving right. into one of the more central theses of your book about this separation in the Gadamarian sense of of subject and and uh, subject and morality, if you'd agree. Yes. Yeah. No, I think I think that's right. So yeah, I mean, yeah, let's let's jump into Gadamer. So I guess to tackle the main the main point here that we've had a, a, a splitting between. The embodiment of morality, the, the embodiment of ethics, I guess, within the subject as an as an actual actor of those ethics, someone who would, I guess, in a conversation that we were just having, as as, as a subject that would even know what it is to be good, to know what the good is, and I guess how the the question there is how is Gadamer, I guess, productive in addressing this 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 problem for you? What was the question again? The uh, the sort of the Gadamerian split between. You know the the embodiment of notions such as good within the subject, and their 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 um the, the subject is actually an actual uh, knowing themselves as an actual actor of the good of these values within the world. And Gadamer addressing this this split between the two, I guess. Yeah, with respect to the rehabilitation mm -hmm. and what it is that he's uh, trying to rehabilitate. Um, I think you know this kind of speaks to the split between theory and practice um, that we've been talking about and our inability to sort of see ourselves as simultaneously um, in this world, um, but in another sense, um, capable of distantiating ourselves from it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, Gadamer draws on the phenomenological tradition. And what he's trying to show is how uh, our concrete experiences aren't really the obstacle to, but the very condition of our experience of essentially all transcendence, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And so whether you're talking about the experience of art, whether you're talking about moral conduct, as I address in my book, Moral, moral and Political Conduct, or whether you're talking about truth, 
as he does in Truth and Method, his magnum opus. Um, that understanding that concrete experience does not get in the way, but is the very condition of those experiences, mm. that's going to go a long way towards collapsing this divide that we've been talking about. And so uh, when he writes Truth and Method, um, that theory, which he calls philosophical hermeneutics, is more or less his detailed understanding of how interpretation works, right? How we understand anything at all. And the answer that he gives is by virtue of our being embodied creatures in the world. Understanding, Gadamer says, is always interpretation. And it begins with a different view of what he calls our prejudices. Mm -hmm. Prejudice is kind of the concrete experiences of reality that we carry around with us all the time. They're, um, they're prejudgments. Mm -hmm. And so uh, he says, when we go to understand anything, uh, what we're really doing is we're kind of projecting prior experiences of the world in anticipation of meaning. Mm. He calls them four projections or four conceptions of meaning. Uh, and when we do that, we're often proven wrong, of course, about what to expect. The world sort of shows us to be different than we expected it would be. Um, but we sort of make corrections to the things that we have learned, to the prior experiences. He says we merge uh, our horizon of understanding with this sort of new information that's out there. And as we do that, we learn more and we prepare ourselves for future experiences. It's kind of like the advantage to being a concrete embodied historical being in the world is that you bring prior experience to bear on whatever it is you're going to encounter. And that's helpful. It's the, it's the concrete vantage point from which you exist and make sense of things. Now, why does that matter for morality? Um, well, our encounter with the good works this way as well. In other words, we encounter it experientially in the concrete conditions of the world, uh, of which we're always a part. Um, and we always find ourselves kind of habituated into certain moral experiences, right? Um, that inform how we view right and wrong, reality in terms of right and wrong. Um, and so, you know, what is it that Gadamer is trying to do when he rehabilitates our view of prejudice? He's trying to say that this isn't always something to be removed in order to understand reality. Sometimes you need it, right? In fact, all the time you need it. You need a starting point for making sense of the world. Um, and so you can see how that would play out with regard to moral discussion and moral deliberation. If you don't have a concrete foundation from which to make sense of the world, right? Conversation can't even get off the ground. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's essentially why this rehabilitation, this collapse is necessary. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's important for anything, I would say, that's premised on morality, which I think politics fundamentally is. Um, 
if you don't have an understanding of where morality comes from, that it comes from prior concrete experiences, you're going to think about morality and uh, and you're going to think about politics in some pretty funny ways. And I think the deliberative Democrats do that. I think they end up talking about morality as if it's like, um, you know, a concept or a rule or a principle. Um, and Rawls and Habermas both do this. Um, but if you do that, um, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a tool in a tool bag that you go to reach for, but that's not really a part of you. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't really have any connection with who you are and where you've been. Um, and so anyway, so I don't know if that makes any sense, but, th- but that's, that's kind of why I think this, this rehabilitation is necessary. If you're going to change the way the imp- the import that we think about community, you have to view those prejudices as a, as essential uh, to engaging in political discussions. Mm. Do you think modern man has expectations, has prejudices? Yes, I do. But are, are they <laughs> one of are one they, of the most well different? one one of the one of well, yes one of the most prominent mm. that Gonimer talks about is the prejudice against prejudice. <laughs> Right. And he's being he's being sort of um I think it's being sort of funny when he when he coins that term. But um that is this divide that we've been talking about. Um you know, and so why is it that we prioritize autonomy so much? Mm-hmm. Right? Because we don't really see concrete experience as valuable. Mm. We think radical choice is a kind of uh, ultimate good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and again, I'm not saying that there aren't certain benefits to freedom, um, to individual freedom, but that if there are no drawbacks, uh, if, if that's what you're going to say about it, then I think you're being a little bit idealistic or utopian, as I say in the book. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you set up radical choices, you're primary value then eventually you're going to run out of choices you're going to have to start making them up and or or deconstructing the ones which were held for certain reasons for a long long time i mean you know i think uh you know that whole idea of prejudice against prejudice reminds me of Husserl, who would say you know if your theory if your theory holds that it a theory itself can be inherently negated then the theory itself is never going to be a theory so it's like prejudice against prejudice well right we're no longer building anything um do you think i mean it's 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 i guess it's just a tangential question but it's like yeah but uh if i could just add one one more thing to that yeah um for Gadamer to be true to his thought that would have to have a source, wouldn't it? Right. That would have to have an origin yeah. in our concrete practices. And I think the answer is we think like cosmopolitans because we live like cosmopolitans. Mm-hmm. In other words, we have this prejudice against prejudice or we prioritize autonomy mm-hmm. because that's how we're already living. We're already living outside of communities. Mm-hmm. We're already living outside of, uh, I guess, traditional communities, I should say. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that ends up making sense to us that that's the sort of best way to live. And so you're sort of in a vicious cycle. Absolutely. I would absolutely agree. It's like the most vicious kind of hegemony is the postmodern one, which says that it's destroyed all hegemonies. But yeah. really, that in itself is a very malicious form of hegemony because it's very difficult to escape because to do so, you either get declared, I guess, a returning traditional who just wants to border things, or if you're emancipating more, you're still caught in the same trap. So, you know, um, like you're saying about the cosmopolitans, it's like you're, you're if you're stuck within deconstruction, uh, but, but that itself declares itself as a deconstruction, it's almost like you're disallowed any uh, ability to actually construct something at any point. But, but the, you know, the, I think the way to, mm-hmm. the way to get out of this. That's um, the key question. That's why I like well, your book because it's concrete and practical. Because <laughs> you head well, you head towards something which is like, look, let's get out of this. I I think the way to get out of it is to stop, is to start seeing this as a continuum, to stop seeing this as Manichaean alternatives. Mm. And I think you and I, I mean, even the two of us, just kind of naturally, organically in our conversation, were we were kind of speaking as if these were black and white alternatives, but it is a continuum. Um, and so you don't have to reject the modern world entirely in order to push the needle back in the direction of traditional community. Mm-hmm. It, it's not all or nothing. And I think, you know, there are people out there, there are conservatives out there. I'm thinking in particular of people like Rod Dreher, um, who get, uh, and, and, uh, and Patrick Deneen, you know, who, who get sort of uh, accused of a kind of uh, escapism. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think maybe not wrongly. Um, I think they they sort of have this escapist, or at least an escapist streak in their thinking. They want to sort of withdraw uh, like St. Benedict to these sort of small scale communities. Um, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Uh, no, that's not to say that I disapprove of everything that they proposed. In fact, I think that that both of those guys have some really interesting things to say about restoring community. Um, but I think that there's got to be a kind of willingness to live within this world, or we're going to end up making the perfect the enemy of the good. Would you say that they are such such ideas? I mean also in relation to to the sort of underlying discussion on utopianism. And uh, someone I know we're both, well, I'm now very fond of, and I know you're fond of, Irving Babbitt. I mean, those, is that a small-scale immanentization of the eschaton? Yes. Exactly. I think that's well, I think that's well said. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, and I, I try and say this in the book, not in so many words, there's a romantic streak mm-hmm. among conservatives that has to be avoided. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I think it's counterproductive because if it ends up not if it ends up refusing to deal with the modern world on its own terms, it becomes hopelessly romantic um, and and entirely impractical. Um, so I think the challenge, if you think that there is anything good about community, the challenge is finding a way not just to resist all of the forces towards atomization in the modern world, but to try and restore community, not in spite of, 
but with within the modern world with the modern world mm. um and so there's there's a kind of there's got to be a kind of uh creativity in one's response um so what do i mean by that um well you know the internet can be famously right it's a cliche but it can be a source of fracturing social fracturing anonymization um but you know there are groups of friends that um you know people who uh you know and and i do this with a number of colleagues scholars but i know of people who do it with you know college friends old friends from their hometown they have regular zoom meetings from time to time right and it's something that continues to build community but it does so not against or not in spite of the modern world but with it it's strategic it's almost like uh it's like a um you know looking at the modern world is not necessarily the enemy but 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 is something that can be worked within mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and i think that 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 kind of creative thinking is really what i'm trying to hit upon uh at the end of the book when i say i sort of i sort of poke fun a little bit at Alistair McIntyre even though i consider him a kindred spirit mm-hmm sort of poke fun at him at one at that one point in the book. And I say, look, he's not doing us any favors by painting the medieval fishing village as kind of his ideal mm. because he just paints his whole, his whole philosophy as, as hopelessly utopian when he does that. Mm. And I think he ends up becoming kind of the mirror image of those who simply say, well, we have to embrace modernity wholesale, mm. which I think the deliberative Democrats are essentially doing. In a way, I want to actually bring it back to your from what you've just said there, I want to bring it back to your, the, the, the room at the start and the difference between two types of Platonism. And I'll see if I can pull this all together. But the two types of Platonism and the one being fairly concrete and the one sort of then still having this reliance on the forms. It seems to me that uh, in relation to what we were saying, modern conservatism of the Deneen McIntyre type is almost so extremely empirical that it can't detach itself from linear time so it can only envision going back as opposed to understanding that that form of tradition like the we could call it maybe the idea of the tradition which made the empirical rally reality uh be a reality in the empirical world you don't have to go back to the time to get that concept that form you know, that's that's an idea, that's a form, it can be brought down now. But if you sort of, the whole idea of like, the only way we can get that thing back is we have to go back to, you know, 1200 uh, AD and uh, go live in a fishing village. It's like, well, no, the, the, you know, the, the tradi- it seems to me the tradition, the concept, the idea was behind it. And there's a conflation of values with with aesthetics. I mean, it's the same conflation where people say, oh, you're a traditionalist. Do you want to go back in time and get typhoid? It's like you know, typhoid was just the thing that happened to be in the time when there was tradition, right? You know, the, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. This this linear conception of time is, I think, something that it speaks directly to Gadamer. Mm. Um, you know, he speaks pejoratively about historical consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think surprises a lot of people because they think, oh, you know, he's a student of Heidegger's. He's, you know, he's he's into historical consciousness, but he he uses that term, and sometimes he calls it naive historical consciousness, which which is what he really means by it. Um, 
we sort of view history as an object mm. um, and ourselves in the present. This, this has to do with your linear conception of time you were talking about. Um, you know, we almost want to jump back into it, or at least some people want to jump right back into a period which existed before. And what Gadamer's trying to do, um, you know, insofar as he comes up with a kind of, I, I hate to ever associate his thinking with a solution or an anecdote or anything like that or a method. Um, but I think really uh, he proposes kind of bringing back the notion of the conversation and viewing the past as part of a conversation in which we see ourselves. That's a way to sort of overcome that objectification of the past. Hmm. And it has everything to do with what I was just talking about, which is, you know, what would it mean to, you know, sort of bring back or restore a kind of traditional community in the modern world in which we live? The only way that you could really do that is if you took lessons that were learned in the past, but applied them to the present, mm-hmm. but saw them as in some sense, needing to speak directly to the circumstances that are around now. And I think that's the missing component in that linear conception of time. Mm-hmm. It's like some of these people just want to jump back, jump backwards. Mm-hmm. And instead, you know, Gadamer says, the conversation is a better model for thinking about the past because there's a kind of dialectic between past and present, right? We get to say something. Our, our circumstances now have a say, but the way that things were also has a say. Mm. You're sort of emerging of horizons between the two where the past is applied to the present. Mm-hmm. He talks in Truth and Method about application and about how application is something that uh, I think his philosophical hermeneutics is designed to do which we have entirely lost sight of in light of historical consciousness. Historical consciousness has no sense of application because it loses sight of the thinking subject. The thinking subject has ceased to exist and all there is is this past that one mm-hmm. that one wants to go back to for whatever reason. I mean, those are the, those tend to be um, political conservatives you're talking about we were talking about before. Um, but you know, positive positivists want to do this too. They want to jump right back into the past for different reasons. I mean, they're studying it, right? Um, um, Straussians. Straussians want to do this as well because they want the past, they want a recovery of the past as it was thought by the person doing the writing at the time, the ancients, right? Plato or whoever. Mm. (laughs) Um, But there's still an unwillingness to see the present, the circumstances in which we are inevitably involved and immersed as essentially having uh, a kind of part in that conversation, that there's to be a kind of meeting ground between the two, between past and present. And, you know, I think the reason Gadamer is doing this is because he thinks that this is where truth emerges. Hmm. Truth emerges fundamentally between in this meeting ground between horizons of understanding it can only emerge out of conversation Mm. um and so i think that you know there's there's nothing really real about that romantic view of the past 
I mean, there's some there's something very unreal about it. It's dangerous when it's gone. It's say that again. Sorry. It's, well, it's gone. It's the past by definition, right? Yes. Yes. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And so, I think um, you know, you had asked me at one point in the questions you sent about you know what is it he's trying to rehabilitate, and I think in the long run, it's truth. It's the truth of what the past has to say to us. It's getting the past to speak to us again. Um, and I think that insofar as we objectify anything, really, I mean, the past, but it could be any conversation partner, you're prohibiting truth from emerging. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's a very he's a very classical thinker in that way. I mean, he's fundamentally concerned with truth, but it's truth not as kind of a static, you know, it's not the forms. It's not a static picture of reality. It's aletheia, right? It's it's a truth that is underway and in motion um, that can only come about by virtue of what you and I are doing right now, mm-hmm. talking. Mm. What's the role then of the thinking subject going into the future? What's the role of the thinking subject going into the future? Um. Can you be a little more specific? Well, I guess I guess to draw it really down to, uh, I'm always interested in you know where where we where we go because I think it's a question that not too many people address this concreteness of okay, well, then what? So towards this rehabilitation, what role does what role do we as these lovely modern individuals? What role do we play in rehabilitating this truth? How do we rehabilitate? Right. Um, or, or, or how do we do that? So Gadamer gives us, uh, and this is why he gets this reputation as being sort of this abstract philosopher, but sometimes he gives you these wonderfully concrete metaphors that he uh, uses. Um, the, the analogies or metaphors that he uses for uh, application or the, you know, the rehabilitation of the past, the application that he thinks is a better approach a healthier approach, I think, to to living with the past in our lives. Um, he says that it's the approach to reading texts that the lawyer and the the priest or minister engages in. And if you think about it, the way that they, the lawyer or the judge, right, the legal professional, mm. or uh, you know, the, the the priest, the rabbi, the minister approaches religious texts. Um, they do so in a way that really speaks directly to application. They don't look at texts as kind of, or at least I think a really good one doesn't look at a text and say, well, you know, we need to, we need to get back there. We need to get back to the time in which these people were living. Mm-hmm. It's more a sense of, okay, what is this text saying to us now? Mm-hmm. How do we apply this text to our lives? I mean, if you don't like the religious metaphor, you know, think of lawyers and judges. Mm-hmm. And they're just looking at a code, a statute, or or maybe prior case law. And they're saying, you know, how does that apply to the parties before us in this case? Um, I think that that's a much healthier way of thinking about the past uh, because it's it's eminently practical. It says, I'm not trying to get back there. I'm not trying to get back to what those guys were doing, how they were living then. I'm trying to see how they were living then in light of present circumstances. And there has to be a kind of delicate balance between the two, right? 
Um, so it gets back to what we were saying before. You know, if I think that traditional community has some value for our present lives, and I'm not saying it's the be all and end all, mm. but let's just, you know, accept my premises for the moment that it's important for deliberation. You know, I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is, okay, what would traditional community look like in the times in which we're living now? I gave you an example before of using the internet to cultivate friendships, which, you know, for the most part, the internet is is being used to undermine. Um, but that's just one example, right? Mm. Um, but there, there are other ways in which, um, you know, communities are being formed every day all around us. And, and much, much as I, uh, much as I kind of badmouthed him before, I think Rod Dreher, you know, comes up with some eminently practical ways in which community can be developed now. Mm. Um, and so it's just the romantic side of, of his thinking I would want to get away from. But I think there are some very practical ways in which community can be developed. Um, you know, um, you know, the, the, the homeschool movement mm. would be a, a wonderful example. And I might say, well, you know, homeschooling is doing the opposite, right? It doesn't socialize people. Right, it keeps them apart from uh, the rest of society. Not anymore. The way that homeschool movements uh, movement has developed, has evolved, at least in America, um, it, it's now uh, now you see these sort of um, these collectives, these sort of cooperative mm. ways of teaching children, in which there are sort of groups that migrate from house to house to teach different subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, and they often tend to be associated with the church, but I think they're not always. But I think these are wonderful ways in which you can actually apply community development in the modern world, which doesn't have to uh, it doesn't have to try to get back to necessarily an older uh, way of living. I mean, I think you know the, the extreme example uh, of kind of a you know, a romantic conception would be, you know, trying trying to do something radically new, like uh, or, or radically old, really, uh, like the Amish would mm -hmm. do, right? I mean, to be a complete luddite, to completely reject all the trappings in the modern world, I think would be uh, romantic and idealistic. I think, you know, I think the Amish have uh, a really tough time doing that, and that's why they have to be so strict. Mm -hmm. Most of us can't live that way. Most of us would find that incredibly challenging. Would probably give up after a, after a few days. Mm -hmm. um, but that that's the kind of uh, working within the system as opposed to against it that I think is a helpful way of restoring community in the world in the 21st century in the world in which we live. Is there anything you'd like to add about your book that you feel is key that we uh, that we haven't touched upon? don't think so um your questions are really good um and uh and, and covered a lot of ground and ground that i didn't really expect us to cover but um i think we we talked about um you made me be more practical <laughs> <laughs> talked talked about a lot of a, a lot of contemporary implications um for some of the bigger questions that i've been working through so i appreciate that what are you working on now yeah, so I mentioned at the beginning um, that uh, tradition on the one hand and sort of critiques of utopianism on the other uh, are sort of the two areas of focus. Um, the critique of utopianism uh, in particular with regard to science and scientific progress 
uh, sort of utopian visions of progress uh, with regard to scientific and technological innovation mm-hmm. um, is something that I'm working on now. And the sort of entree into that, um, it's such a big topic <laughs> and there's so much out there. And I know that you you have had a lot of guests on your show uh, speaking to some of these issues. Um, but I felt like just reading some literature mm-hmm. for a while. And so I'm going to be, or I am writing a book uh, that deals with different pieces uh, of largely short literature um, that deals with problems of technology, the ways in which technology is um, is kind of uh, to become a god for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really speaking to that authority in our lives what kind what kind of an authority is science and technology um and some of the i guess some of the writers that i've been looking at um i wrote a chapter and actually had this one published uh written article on mary shelley on frankenstein Mm -hmm. um and since then um wrote another chapter on uh a short story of flannery o'connor's um, the Lame Shall Enter First, which I think is a, a wonderful story about um, science um, and scientific um, reform and humanitarianism. Um, and right now, um, working on Dostoevsky's uh, Notes from the Underground, mm. um, which is, also speaks to scientism. And the, there's going to be a, a, at least a fourth uh, author or chapter um, for this book. But I'm not sure who yet. It might be Nathaniel Hawthorne. Um, but that's just sort of one of a number of names I'm kicking around for it. So sounds fascinating. So these are all going to be compiled into a book at the end, or in, into a book, um, and there will be, I guess, uh, a kind of arc or thread that um, I can see emerging right now. But I'm a little reluctant to really say too much about it because it's still kind of just dating. Okay. Well, I'll be sure to put the links for your the book that we've spoken about today, Tradition of the Deliberative Turn, in the description below. Um, but Ryan Holston, it's been a great conversation. Thanks very much. Thanks, James. I appreciate it.